Outwitting the Devil by Napoleon Hill An Adult Brain Audiobook Production Read by Graham Dunlop Chapter 1 My First Meeting with Andrew Carnegie For more than a quarter of a century, my major purpose has been that of isolating and organizing into a philosophy of achievement the causes of both failure and success with the object of being helpful to others who have neither the inclination nor the opportunity to engage in this form of research. My labor began in 1908 as the result of an interview that I had with the late Andrew Carnegie. I frankly told Mr. Carnegie that I wished to enter law school and that I had conceived the idea of paying my way through school by interviewing successful men and women, finding out how they came by their success and writing stories of my discoveries for magazines. At the end of our first visit, Mr. Carnegie asked whether or not I possessed enough courage to carry out a suggestion that he wished to offer me. I replied that courage was about all I did have, and that I was prepared to do my best to carry out any suggestion he cared to offer. He then said, Your idea of writing stories about men and women who are successful is commendable as far as it goes, and I have no intention of trying to discourage you from carrying out your purpose. But I must tell you that if you wish to be of enduring service, not only to those now living, but to posterity as well, you can do so if you will take the time to organize all of the causes of failure as well as all the causes of success. There are millions of people in the world who have not the slightest conception of the causes of success and failure. The schools and colleges teach practically everything except the principles of individual achievement. They require young men and women to spend from four to eight years acquiring abstract knowledge, but do not teach them what to do with this knowledge after they get it. The world is in need of a practical, understandable philosophy of achievement, organized from the factual knowledge gained from the experience of men and women in the great university of life. In the entire field of philosophy, I find nothing which even remotely resembles the sort of philosophy which I have in mind. We have few philosophers who are capable of teaching men and women the art of living. It seems to me that there is an opportunity which should challenge an ambitious young man of your type. But ambition alone is not enough for this task which I have suggested. The one who undertakes it must have courage and tenacity. The job will require at least 20 years of continuous effort, during which the one who undertakes it will have to earn his living from some other source because this sort of research is never profitable at the outset. And generally, those who have contributed to civilization through work of this nature have had to wait a hundred years or so after their own funerals to receive recognition for their labor. If you undertake this job, you should interview not only the few who have succeeded, but the many who have failed. You should carefully analyze many thousands of people who have been classed as failures, and I mean by the term failures, Men and women who come to the closing chapter of life disappointed because they did not attain the goal which they had set their hearts upon achieving. As inconsistent as it may seem, you will learn more about how to succeed from the failures than you will from the so-called successes. They will teach you what not to do. Along toward the end of your labor, if you carry it through successfully, you will make a discovery which may be a great surprise to you. You will discover that the cause of success is not something separate and apart from the man, that it is a force so intangible in nature that the majority of men never recognize it, a force which might be properly called the other self. 
Noteworthy is the fact that this other self seldom exerts its influence or makes itself known, excepting at times of unusual emergency, when men are forced through adversity and temporary defeat to change their habits and to think their way out of difficulty. My experience has taught me that a man is never quite so near success as when that which he calls failure has overtaken him. For it is on occasions of this sort that he is forced to think. If he thinks accurately and with persistence, he discovers that so-called failure usually is nothing more than a signal to rearm himself with a new plan or purpose. Most real failures are due to limitations which men set up in their own minds. If they had the courage to go one step further, they would discover their error. Begin life anew. Mr. Carnegie's speech reshaped my entire life and planted in my mind a burning purpose, which has driven me ceaselessly, and this despite the fact that I had but a vague idea as to what he meant by the term other self. During my labor of research into the causes of failure and success, I have had the privilege of analyzing more than 25,000 men and women who were rated as failures and over 500 who were classed as successful. Many years ago, I caught my first glimpse of that other self Mr. Carnegie had mentioned. The discovery came, as he said it would, as the result of two major turning points of my life, which constituted emergencies that forced me to think my way out of difficulties, such as I had never before experienced. I wish it were possible to describe the discovery without the use of the personal pronoun, but this is impossible because it came through personal experiences from which it cannot be separated. To give you the complete picture, I shall have to go back to the first of these two major turning points and bring you up to the discovery step by step. The research necessary for the accumulation of the data, from which the 17 principles of achievement and the 30 major causes of failure were organized, required years of labor. I had reached the false conclusion that my task of organizing a complete philosophy of personal achievement had been completed. Far from having been completed, my work had merely begun. I had erected the skeleton of a philosophy by organizing the 17 principles of achievement and the 30 major causes of failure. But that skeleton had to be covered with the flesh of application and experience. Moreover, it had to be given a soul through which it might inspire men and women to meet obstacles without going down under them. The soul, which had yet to be added, as I discovered later, became available only after my other self made its appearance through two major turning points of my life. Resolving to turn my attention and whatever talents I might possess into monetary returns through business and professional channels, I decided to go into the profession of advertising, and I became the advertising manager of the LaSalle Extension University of Chicago. Everything went along beautifully for one year, at the end of which I was seized by a violent dislike for my job and resigned. I then entered the chain store business with the former president of the LaSalle Extension University and became the president of the Betsy Ross Candy Company. Unfortunate, or what seemed to me at the time to be unfortunate, disagreements with business associates disengaged me from that undertaking. The lure of advertising still was in my blood, and I tried again to give expression to it by organizing a school of advertising and salesmanship as a part of Bryant and Stratton Business College. The enterprise was sailing smoothly and we were making money rapidly when the United States entered World War I. 
In response to an inner urge which no words can describe, I walked away from the school and entered the service of the United States government. Under President Woodrow Wilson's personal direction, leaving a perfectly sound business to disintegrate. On Armistice Day, 1918, I began the publication of the Golden Rule magazine. Despite the fact that I did not have a penny of capital, the magazine grew rapidly and soon gained a nationwide circulation of nearly half a million, ending its first year's business with a profit of 3156 Some years later, I learned from an experienced publisher that no man experienced in the publication and distribution of national magazines would think of starting such a magazine with less than a half a million dollars of capital. The Golden Rule magazine and I were destined to part company. The more we succeeded, the more discontented I became, until finally, due to an accumulation of petty annoyances caused by business associates, I made them a present of the magazine and stepped out. Through that move, perhaps I tossed a small fortune over my shoulder. Next, I organized a training school for salesmen. My first assignment was to train a sales army of 3,000 people for a chain store company for which I received $10 for each salesman who went through my classes. Within six months, my work had netted me a little over 30000 Success, as far as money was concerned, was crowning my efforts with abundance. Again, I became fidgety inside. I was not happy. It became more obvious every day that no amount of money would ever make me happy. Without the slightest reasonable excuse for my actions, I stepped out and gave up a business from which I might easily have earned a healthy salary. My friends and business associates thought I was crazy, and they were not backward about saying so. Frankly, I was inclined to agree with them, but there seemed nothing I could do about it. I was seeking happiness and I had not found it. At least that is the only explanation I could offer for my unusual actions. What man really knows himself? That was during the late fall of 1923. I found myself stranded in Columbus, Ohio, without funds and worse still, without a plan by which to work my way out of my difficulty. It was the first time in my life that I had actually been stranded because of lack of funds. Many times previously, I had found money to be rather shy, but never before had I failed to get what I needed for personal conveniences. The experience stunned me. I seemed totally at sea as to what I could or should do. I thought of a dozen plans by which I might solve my problem, but dismissed them all as being either impractical or impossible of achievement. I felt like one who was lost in a jungle without a compass. Every attempt I made to work my way out brought me back to the original starting point. For nearly two months, I suffered with the worst of all human ailments, indecision. I knew the 17 principles of personal achievement but what I did not know was how to apply them. Without knowing it, I was facing one of those emergencies of life through which, Mr. Carnegie had told me, men sometimes discover their other selves. My distress was so great that it never occurred to me to sit down and analyze its cause and seek its cure. Defeat is converted into victory. One afternoon I reached a decision through which I found the way out of my difficulty. I had a feeling that I wanted to get out into the open spaces of the country, where I could get a breath of fresh air and think. I began to walk, and had gone seven or eight miles when I felt myself brought suddenly to a standstill. For several minutes, I stood there as if I had been glued to my tracks. Everything around me went dark. I could hear the loud sound of some form of energy which was vibrating at a very high rate. 
Then my nerves became quiet, my muscles relaxed, and a great calmness came over me. The atmosphere began to clear, and as it did so, I received a command from within, which came in the form of a thought, as near as I can describe it. The command was so clear and distinct that I could not misunderstand it. In substance, it said, The time has come for you to complete the philosophy of achievement, which you began at Carnegie's suggestion. Go back home at once and begin transferring the data you have gathered from your own mind to written manuscripts. My other self had awakened. For a few minutes, I was frightened. The experience was unlike any I had ever undergone before. I turned and walked rapidly until I reached home. As I approached the house, I saw my three little boys looking out of a window of our house at our neighbor's children, who were dressing a Christmas tree in the house next door. Then I recalled that it was Christmas Eve. Moreover, I recalled with a feeling of deep distress, such as I had never known before, that there would be no Christmas tree at our house. The look of disappointment on the faces of my children reminded me painfully of that fact. I went into the house, sat down at my typewriter, and began at once to reduce to writing the discoveries I had made concerning the causes of success and failure. As I placed the first sheet of paper in the typewriter, I was interrupted by that same strange feeling which had come over me out in the country a few hours before. And this thought flashed into my mind. Your mission in life is to complete the world's first philosophy of individual achievement. You have been trying in vain to escape your task, each effort having brought you failure. You are seeking happiness. Learn this lesson once and forever, that you will find happiness only by helping others to find it. You have been a stubborn student. You have had to be cured of your stubbornness through disappointment. Within a few years from now, the whole world will start to an experience which will place millions of people in need of the philosophy with which you have been directed to complete. Your big opportunity to find happiness by rendering useful service will have come. Go to work, and do not stop until you have completed and published the manuscripts which you have begun. I was conscious of having arrived at last at the end of life's rainbow, and I was happy. Doubt makes its appearance. The spell, if the experience may be so called, passed away. I began to write. Shortly thereafter, my reason suggested to me that I was embarking upon a fool's mission. The idea of a man who was down and almost out presuming to write a philosophy of personal achievement seemed so ludicrous that I laughed hilariously, perhaps scornfully. I squirmed in my chair ran my fingers through my hair and tried to create an alibi that would justify me in my own mind in taking the sheet of paper out of my typewriter before I had really begun to write. But the urge to continue was stronger than the desire to quit. I became reconciled to my task and went ahead. Looking backward now, in the light of all that has happened, I can see that those minor experiences of adversity through which I had passed were amongst the most fortunate and profitable of all my experiences. They were blessings in disguise because they forced me to continue a work which finally brought me an opportunity to make myself more useful to the world than I might have been had I succeeded in any previous plan or purpose. For almost three months I worked on those manuscripts, completing them during the early part of 1924. As soon as they had been completed, I felt myself again being lured by the desire to get back into the great American game of business. Succumbing to the lure, I purchased the Metropolitan Business College in Cleveland, Ohio, and began to lay plans for increasing its capacity. 
By the end of 1924, we had developed and expanded by adding new courses until we were doing a business nearly double the best previous record the school had ever known. Again, the germ of discontentment began to make itself felt in my blood. Again, I knew that I could not find happiness in that sort of endeavor. I turned the business over to my associates and went to the lecture platform, lecturing on the philosophy of achievement, to the organization of which I had devoted so many of my previous years. One night, I was booked to lecture in Canton, Ohio. Fate, or whatever it is that seems sometimes to shape the destiny of men, no matter how hard they may try to battle against it, again stepped into the picture and brought me face to face with a painful experience. In my Canton audience sat Dr. R. Mellet, publisher of the Canton Daily News. Mr. Mellet became so thoroughly interested in the philosophy of individual achievement on which I lectured that night that he invited me to come and see him the following day. That visit resulted in a partnership agreement which was to have taken place on the 1st of the following January, when Mr. Mellet planned to resign as publisher of the Daily News to take charge of the business and publishing of the philosophy on which I had been working. However, in July 1926, Mr. Mallet was murdered by Pat McDermott, an underworld character and a Canton, Ohio policeman, both of whom were sentenced to life imprisonment. He was murdered because he was exposing in his newspaper a hookup between the Bodeggers and certain members of the Canton police force. The crime was one of the most shocking that the Prohibition era produced. Chance saves my life. The morning after Mr. Millett's death, I was called on the telephone and put on notice by some unknown person that I had one hour in which to get out of Canton, that I could go voluntarily within the hour, but if I waited longer, I probably would go in a pine box. My business association with Mr. Millett had apparently been misunderstood. His murderers evidently believed I was directly connected with the expose he was making in his newspapers. I did not wait for the one-hour time limit to expire, but immediately got into my automobile and drove down to the home of relatives in the mountains of West Virginia, where I remained until the murderers had been placed in jail. That experience came well within the category described by Mr. Carnegie as an emergency that forces men to think. For the first time in my life, I knew the pain of constant fear. My experience of a few years before in Columbus had filled my mind with doubt and temporary indecision but this one had filled it with a fear which I seemed unable to remove. During the time that I was in hiding, I seldom left the house at night, and when I did step out, I kept my hand on an automatic pistol in my coat pocket, with the safety catch unlatched for immediate action. If a strange automobile stopped in front of the house where I was hiding, I went into the basement and carefully scrutinized its occupants through the basement windows. After some months of this sort of experience, my nerves began to crack. My courage had completely left me. The ambition which had heartened me during the years of labor in my search for the causes of failure and success also had departed. Slowly, step by step, I felt myself slipping into a state of lethargy from which I was afraid I should never be able to emerge. The feeling must have been closely akin to that experienced by one who suddenly steps into quicksand and realizes that every effort to extricate himself carries him just so much deeper. Fear is a self-generating morass. If the seed of insanity had been in my makeup, surely it would have germinated during those months of living death. Foolish indecision, irresolute dreams, doubt, and fear were my mind's concern day and night. 
The emergency I faced was disastrous in two ways. First, the very nature of it kept me in a constant state of indecision and fear. Secondly, the forced concealment kept me in idleness, with its attendant heaviness of time, which I naturally devoted to worry. My reasoning faculty had almost been paralyzed. I realized that I had to work myself out of this state of mind. But how? The resourcefulness which had helped me to meet all previous emergencies seemed to have completely taken wing, leaving me helpless. Out of my difficulties, which were burdensome enough up to this point, grew another which seemed more painful than all the others combined. It was the realization that I had spent the better portion of my past years in chasing a rainbow, searching hither and yon for the causes of success, and finding myself now more helpless than any of the 25,000 people whom I had judged as being failures. This thought was almost maddening. Moreover, it was extremely humiliating because I had been lecturing all over the country in schools and colleges and before business organizations, presuming to tell other people how to apply the 17 principles of success, while here I was unable to apply them myself. I was sure that I could never again face the world with a feeling of confidence. Every time I looked at myself in the mirror, I noticed an expression of self-contempt on my face, and not infrequently I did say things to the man in the mirror which are not printable. I'd begun to place myself in the category of charlatans who offer others a remedy for failure which they themselves cannot successfully apply. The criminals who had murdered Mr. Mellet had been tried and sent to the penitentiary for life. Therefore, it was perfectly safe as far as they were concerned for me to come out of hiding and again take up my work. I could not come out, however, because now I faced circumstances more frightful than the criminals who had sent me into hiding. The experience had destroyed whatever initiative I had possessed. I felt myself in the clutches of some depressing influence which seemed like a nightmare. I was alive. I could move around, but I could not think of a single move by which I might continue to seek the goal which I had, at Mr. Carnegie's suggestion, set for myself. I was rapidly becoming indifferent, not only towards myself, but worse still, I was becoming grouchy and irritable toward those who had given me shelter during my emergency. I faced the greatest emergency of my life. Unless you have gone through a similar experience, you cannot possibly know how I felt. Such experiences cannot be described. To be understood, they must be felt. The Most Dramatic Moment of My Life the turn came suddenly, in fall of 1927, more than a year after the Canton incident. I left the house one night and walked up to the public school building, on top of a hill above the town. I had reached a decision to fight the matter out with myself before that night ended. I began to walk around the building, trying to force my befuddled brain to think clearly. I must have made several hundred trips around the building before anything which even remotely resembled organized thought began to take place in my mind. As I walked, I repeated over and over to myself, There is a way out, and I'm going to find it before I go back to the house. I must have repeated that sentence a thousand times. Moreover, I meant exactly what I was saying. I was thoroughly disgusted with myself, but I entertained a hope of salvation. Then, like a flash of lightning out of a clear sky, an idea burst into my mind with such force that the impulse drove my blood up and down my veins. This is your testing time. You have been reduced to poverty and humiliated in order that you might be forced to discover your other self. 
For the first time in years, I recalled what Mr. Carnegie had said about this other self. I recalled now that he said I would discover it toward the end of my labor of research into the causes of failure and success, and that the discovery usually came as the result of an emergency, when men are forced to change their habits and to think their way out of difficulty. I continued to walk around the schoolhouse, but now I was walking on air. Subconsciously, I seemed to know that I was about to be released from the self-made prison into which I had cast myself. I realized that this great emergency had brought me an opportunity, not merely to discover my other self, but to test the soundness of the philosophy of achievement, which I had been teaching others as being workable. Soon I would know whether it would work or not. I made up my mind that if it did not work, I would burn the manuscripts I had written and never again be guilty of telling other people that they were the masters of their fate, the captains of their souls. The full moon was just rising over the mountaintop. I'd never seen it shine so brightly before. As I stood gazing at it, another thought flashed into my mind. It was this. You have been telling other people how to master fear and how to surmount the difficulties which arise out of the emergencies of life. From now on, you can speak with authority because you are about to rise above your own difficulties with courage and purpose, resolute and unafraid. With that thought came a change in the chemistry of my being, which lifted me into a state of exaltation I had never known before. My brain began to clear itself of the state of lethargy into which it had lapsed. My faculty of reason began to work once more. For a brief moment, I was happy to have had the privilege of going through those long months of torment, because the experience provided an opportunity for me to test the soundness of the principles of achievement, which I had so laboriously wrested from my research. When this thought came to me, I stopped still, drew my feet closely together, saluted, I did not know what or whom, and stood rigidly at attention for several minutes. This seemed at first like a foolish thing to do. But while I was standing there, another thought came through in the form of an order. It was as brief and snappy as any ever given by a military commander to a subordinate. The order said, Tomorrow, get into your automobile and drive to Philadelphia, where you will receive aid in publishing your philosophy of achievement. There was no further explanation and no modification of the order. As soon as I received it, I walked back to the house, went to bed, and slept with peace of mind, such as I had not known for over a year. When I awoke the following morning, I got out of bed and immediately began to pack my clothes and make ready for the trip to Philadelphia. My reason told me that I was embarking upon a fool's mission. Who did I know in Philadelphia to whom I might apply for financial aid in publishing eight volumes of books at a cost of 25000 I asked myself. Instantly, the answer to that question flashed into my mind as plainly as if it had been uttered in audible words. You are following orders now, instead of asking questions. Your other self will be in charge during this trip. There was another condition which seemed to make my preparation to go to Philadelphia absurd. I had no money. This thought had barely occurred to me when my other self exploded it by giving another sharp order, saying... Ask your brother-in-law for $50, and he will lend it to you. The order seemed definite and final. Without further hesitation, I followed instructions. When I asked my brother-in-law for the money, he said, Why, certainly you can have $50. But if you're going to be gone very long, you had better take $100. I thanked him and said I thought $50 would be enough. I knew it was not enough, 
but that was the amount my other self had commanded me to ask for, and that is the amount I secured. I was greatly relieved when I found that my brother-in-law was not going to ask me why I was going to Philadelphia. If he had known all that had taken place in my mind during the previous night, he perhaps would have thought I should go to a psychiatric hospital for treatment instead of going to Philadelphia on a wild goose chase. My other self takes command. I left with my head telling me I was a fool and my other self commanding me to ignore the challenge and carry out my instructions. I drove all night, arriving in Philadelphia the next morning. My first thought was to look up a modestly priced boarding house where I could rent a room for about $1 a day. Here again, my other self took charge and gave the command to register at the most exclusive hotel in the city. With a little more than $40 of my remaining capital in my pocket, it seemed like financial suicide when I marched up to the desk and asked for a room. Or rather, I should say, I started to ask for a room when my newly discovered other self gave the order to ask for a suite of rooms, the cost of which would about consume my remaining capital in two days. I obeyed. The bellboy picked up my bags, handed me a claim check for my automobile, and bowed me toward the elevator as if I were the Prince of Wales. It was the first time in more than a year that any human being had shown me such deference. My own relatives, with whom I had been living far from having shown me deference, had, so I imagined, felt I was a burden on their hands. And I am sure that I was, because no man in the frame of mind that I had been in for the past year could be anything other than a burden to all with whom he came into contact. It was becoming apparent that my other self was determined to wean me away from the inferiority complex which I had developed. I tossed the bellboy a dollar. I started to estimate what my hotel bill would be by the end of the week when my other self commanded me to get my mind entirely off all thoughts of limitation and to conduct myself for the time being just as if I had all the money I wanted in my pockets. The experience I was passing through was both new and strange to me. I'd never posed as being anything other than what I believed myself to be. For nearly half an hour, this other self gave orders, which I followed to the letter during the subsequent period of my stay in Philadelphia. The instructions were given through the medium of thoughts which presented themselves in my mind with such force that they were readily distinguishable from my ordinary self-created thoughts. I received strange orders from a strange source. My instructions began in this fashion. You are now completely in charge of your other self. You are entitled to know that two entities occupy your body, as in fact two similar entities occupy the body of each living person on earth. One of these entities is motivated by and responds to the impulse of fear. The other is motivated by and responds to the impulse of faith. For more than a year you have been driven like a slave by the fear entity. Night before last, the faith entity gained control over your physical body, and you are now motivated by that entity. For the sake of convenience, you may call this faith entity your other self. It knows no limitations, has no fears, and recognizes no such word as impossible. You were directed to select this environment of luxury in a good hotel as a means of discouraging the return to power of the fear entity. That fear-motivated old self is not dead. It has merely been dethroned. And it will follow you around wherever you go, awaiting a favorable opportunity to step in and take charge of you again. 
It can gain control of you only through your thoughts. Remember this and keep the doors to your mind tightly closed against all thoughts which seek to limit you in any manner whatsoever, and you will be safe. Do not permit yourself to worry about the money you will need for your immediate expense. That will come to you by the time you must have it. Now let us get down to business. First of all, you should know that the faith entity now in charge of your body performs no miracles, nor does it work in opposition to any of nature's laws. As long as it is in charge of your body, it will guide you when you call on it, through impulses of thought which it will place in your mind, in carrying out your plans through the most logical and convenient natural media available. Above everything else, get this fact clearly fixed in your mind, that your other self will not do your work for you. It will only guide you intelligently in achieving for yourself the objects of your desires. This other self will aid you in translating your plans into reality. Moreover, you should know that it begins always with your major or most pronounced desire. At this time, your major desire, the one which brought you here, is to publish and distribute the results of your research into the causes of success and failure. You estimate that you will need approximately $25,000. Among your acquaintances, there is a man who will supply you with this needed capital. Begin at once to call into your mind the names of all persons of your acquaintance whom you have reason to believe might be induced to furnish the financial aid you require. When the name of the logical person comes into your mind, you will recognize it immediately. Communicate with that person and the aid you seek will be given. In your approach, however, present your request in terminology such as you would use in the usual course of business transactions. Make no reference whatsoever to this introduction you have had to your other self. If you violate these instructions, you will meet with temporary defeat. Your other self will remain in charge and continue to direct you as long as you rely upon it. Keep doubt and fear and worry and all thoughts of limitation entirely out of your mind. That will be all for the present. You will now begin to move on your own free will, precisely as you did before you discovered your other self. Physically, you are the same as you have always been. Therefore, no one will recognize that any change has taken place in you. I looked around the room, blinked my eyes, and to make sure that I was not dreaming, I got up and walked over to a mirror and looked at myself closely. The expression on my face had changed from one of doubt to one of courage and faith. There was no longer any doubt in my mind that my physical body was in charge of an influence far different from the one which had been dethroned two nights before, as I walked around that schoolhouse in West Virginia. Chapter 2 A New World is Revealed to Me Obviously, I had undergone a new birth by which I had been separated from all forms of fear. I now had courage such as I never before had experienced. Despite the fact I had not yet has been shown how, or from what source, I would be able to secure the necessary funds which I was seeking. I had such absolute faith that the money would be forthcoming that I could see it already in my possession. On but few occasions in my entire life have I experienced such faith. It was a feeling which one person cannot describe to another. There are no words in the English language suitable for such a description a fact that all who have had similar experiences can easily verify. I proceeded immediately to carry out the instructions I had received. 
All feeling that I had embarked upon an impossible mission had now left me. One by one, I began to call into my mind the name of all my acquaintances I knew to be financially able to supply me with the 25000 which I needed, starting with the name of Henry Ford and going over the entire list of more than 300 people. My other self plainly said, Keep on searching. The darkest hour is just before dawn. But I had come to the end of my rope. My entire list of acquaintances had been exhausted and with it my physical endurance as well. I'd been at work, concentrating my mind upon that list of names for the better part of two days and nights, having stopped only long enough to sleep for a few hours. I leaned back in my chair, shut my eyes, and went into sort of a doze for a few minutes. I was aroused by what seemed to be an explosion in the room. As I regained consciousness, the name of Albert L. Pelton came into my mind and with it a plan which I knew instantly to be the plan through which I would succeed in getting Mr. Pelton to publish my books. I remembered Mr. Pelton only as an advertiser in the Golden Rule magazine, which I had formerly published. I sent for a typewriter, addressed a letter to Mr. Pelton at Meriden, Connecticut, and described the plan just as it had been handed over to me. He answered by telegram, saying that he would be in Philadelphia to see me the following day. When he came, I showed him the original manuscripts of my philosophy and briefly explained what I believed this mission to be. He turned through the pages of the manuscripts for a few minutes, then stopped suddenly and fixed his eyes on the wall for a few seconds and said, I will publish your books for you. The contract was drawn, a substantial advance payment on royalties was given me, the manuscripts were turned over to him, and he took them back to Meriden. I did not ask him at the time what caused him to reach the decision to publish my books before he had read the manuscripts, but I do know that he supplied the necessary capital, printed the books, and assisted me in selling many thousands of sets of them to his own clientele of book buyers, who were located in practically every English-speaking country in the world. My other self makes good. Three months from the day that Mr. Pelton called on me in Philadelphia, a completed set of my books was placed on the table in front of me, and my income from the sale of the books began to run high enough for all my needs. These books are now in the hands of my students all over the world. My first royalty check from the sale of my books was for $850. As I opened the envelope in which it came, my other self said, Your only limitation is the one which you set up in your own mind. I'm not sure that I understand just what this other self is, but I do know that there can be no permanent defeat for the man or the woman who discovers it and relies upon it. The day after Mr. Pelton came to see me in Philadelphia, my other self presented me with an idea which solved my immediate financial problem. The idea flashed into my mind that automobile merchandising methods had to undergo a drastic change and that a future salesman in this field would have to learn to sell automobiles instead of merely serving as buyers of used car trade-ins, as most of them were doing at the time. It also occurred to me that young men who had just finished college and who therefore knew nothing of the old tricks of automobile merchandising would be the material out of which this new brand of salesmen could best be developed. The idea was so distinct and impressive that I immediately called the sales manager of the General Motors company on long-distance telephone and briefly explained my plan to him. Buy it and referred me to the West Philadelphia branch of the Buick Automobile Company, which was then owned and managed by Earl Powell. I went to see Mr. Powell and explained my plan to him, 
and he retained me at once to train fifteen carefully selected young men through whom the plan was put into operation. My income from that retainer was more than enough to take care of all my expenses for the following three months, until the returns from the sale of my books began to come in, including the cost of that expensive suite of rooms over which I had first been so concerned. My other self had not disappointed me. The money I needed was in my hands at the proper time, just as I had been assured the money would be. By this time, I had been convinced that my trip to Philadelphia was by no means a fool's mission, as my reason had indicated it would be before I left West Virginia. From that time right up to this very minute, everything I have needed has come to me, and this despite the fact that the whole world has recently passed through a period of economic depression, when the bare necessities of life have not always been available to all people. Sometimes the arrival of the material things I needed has been a little late, but I can truthfully say that my other self has always met me at the crossroads when I have come to them and indicated which path I should follow. The other self follows no precedence, recognizes no limitations, and always finds a way to accomplish desired ends. It may meet with temporary defeat, but not with permanent failure. I am as sure of the soundness of this statement as I am of the fact of being engaged in writing these lines. Meanwhile, I earnestly hope that some of the millions of men and women who have been wounded by the business depression and other unpleasant experiences will discover within themselves this strange entity which I have called my other self, and that the discovery will lead them, as it has led me, into a closer relationship with that source of power which surmounts obstacles and masters difficulties instead of being mastered by them. There is a great power to be discovered in your other self. Search sincerely and you will find it. Failure. A blessing in disguise. I've made another discovery as the result of this introduction to my other self, namely that there is a solution for every legitimate problem, no matter how difficult the problem may seem. I've also discovered that there comes with every experience of temporary defeat and every failure and every form of adversity, the seed of an equivalent benefit. Mind you, I did not say the full-blown flower of success, but the seed from which that flower may be made to germinate and grow. I know of no exception to this rule. The seed of which I speak may not always be observed, but you may be sure it is there in one form or another. I do not pretend to understand all about this strange force which reduced me to poverty and want and filled me with fear, and then gave me a new birth of faith through which I have been privileged to extend help to tens of thousands who found themselves slipping. But I do know that such a force has come into my life, and that I am doing all I can to place others in communication with it. During my quarter century of research into the causes of success and failure, I have discovered many principles of truth which have been helpful to me and to others. But nothing I have observed has impressed me more than the discovery that every great leader of the past, whose record I have examined, was beset by difficulties and met with temporary defeat before arriving. From Christ on down to Edison, the men who have achieved most have been those who have met with the most stubborn forms of temporary defeat. This would seem to justify the conclusion that infinite intelligence has a plan, or a law, by which it hurdles men over many obstacles before giving them the privilege of leadership or the opportunity to render useful service in a noteworthy fashion. I would not wish to be again subjected to the experiences through which I passed during that fateful Christmas Eve in 1923. 
And since, on that eventful evening when I walked around the schoolhouse in West Virginia and fought that terrible battle with fear, but all the wealth in the world would not induce me to divest myself of the knowledge I have gained from those experiences. Faith has a new meaning to me. I repeat that I do not know exactly what this other self is, but I know enough about it to lean upon it in a spirit of absolute faith in times of difficulty when the ordinary reasoning faculty of my mind seems to be inadequate for my needs. The economic depression, which started in 1929, brought misery to millions of people. But let us not forget that the experience also brought many blessings, not the least of these being the knowledge that there is something infinitely worse than being forced to work. It is being forced not to work. In the main, that depression was more of a blessing than it was a curse if analyzed in the light of the changes it brought to the minds of those who were wounded by it. The same is true of every experience which changes men's habits and forces them to turn to the great within for the solution of their problems. The time which I spent in seclusion in West Virginia was, by great odds, the most severe punishment of my life. But the experience brought blessings in the form of needed knowledge which more than offset the suffering which it cost me. These two results, the suffering and the knowledge gained from it, were inevitable. The law of compensation, which Emerson so clearly defined, made this result both natural and necessary. What the future may hold for me in the way of disappointment through temporary defeat, I of course have no way of knowing. I do know, however, that no experience of the future can possibly wound me as deeply as have some of those of the past, because I am now on speaking terms at least with my other self. Since this other self took charge of me, I have come by useful knowledge which I am sure I never would have discovered while my old fear entity was on the throne. For one thing, I have learned that those who meet with difficulties which seem insurmountable may, if they will do so, best overcome these difficulties by forgetting them for a time and helping others who have greater problems. The Value of Giving Before Trying to Get I am sure that no effort which we extend to those who are in distress can go without some form of adequate reward. Not always does the reward come from those to whom the service is rendered, but it will come from one source or another. I seriously doubt that any man can avail himself of the benefits of his other self as long as he is steeped in greed and avarice, envy and fear. But if I am wrong in this conclusion, then I still have the unusual honor of being one who has found peace of mind and happiness through a viewpoint that was not sound. I would prefer being thus wrong and happy to being right and unhappy. But this viewpoint is not wrong. As long as I remain on good terms with my other self, I shall be able to acquire every material thing that I need. Moreover, I shall be able to find happiness and peace of mind. What more could anyone else accomplish? The sole motive which inspired me to write this book was a sincere desire to be helpful to others by sharing with them as much as they may be prepared to accept of the stupendous fortune which became mine the moment I discovered my other self. This fortune, happily, is one that cannot be measured in material or financial terms alone because it is greater than everything which such things represent. Material and financial fortunes, when reduced to their most liquid terms, are measurable in terms of bank balances. Bank balances are no stronger than banks. This other fortune of which I speak is measurable not only in terms of peace of mind and contentment, but as manifested in those adept at prayer. 
My other self has taught me to concentrate upon my purpose and to forget about the plan by which it is to be attained when I go to prayer. I'm not suggesting that material objects may be acquired without plans. What I am saying is that the power which translates one's thoughts or desires into realities has its source in an infinite intelligence which knows more about plans than the one doing the praying. Stating the case in another way, may it not be wise when praying to trust to the universal mind to hand over the plan best suited for the attainment of the object of that prayer. My experience with prayer has taught me that so often all which results from prayer is a plan, if the prayer is answered at all, a plan that is suited for the attainment of the object of the prayer through natural and material media. The plan must be transmuted through self-effort action. I know nothing about any form of prayer which can be induced to work favorably in a mind that is colored in the slightest degree by fear. A New Way to Pray since becoming better acquainted with my other self, my way of prayer is different from what it was before. I used to go to prayer only when facing difficulty. Now I go to prayer before difficulty overtakes me, when possible. I now pray not for more of this world's goods and greater blessings, but to be worthy of that which I already have. I find that this plan is better than the old one. Infinite intelligence seems not at all offended when I give thanks and show that I am grateful for the blessings which have crowned my efforts. I was astounded when I first tried this plan of offering a prayer of thanks for what I already possessed, to discover what a vast fortune I had owned without being appreciative of it. For example, I discovered that I possessed a sound body which had never been seriously damaged by illness. I had a mind which was reasonably well-balanced. I had a creative imagination through which I could render useful service to great numbers of people. I was blessed with all the freedom I desired in both body and mind. I possessed an imperishable desire to help others who were less fortunate. I discovered that happiness, the highest aim of mankind, was mine for the taking. Business depression or no business depression. Last, but by no means least, I discovered that I had the privilege of approaching infinite intelligence either for the purpose of offering thanks for what I already possessed, or to ask for more, and for guidance. It may be helpful for every reader of this book to take inventory of his or her intangible assets. Such an inventory may disclose possessions of priceless value. Some Signs We Have Overlooked the whole world is undergoing a change of such stupendous proportions that millions of people have become panic-stricken with worry, doubt, indecision, and fear. It seems to me that now is a splendid time for those who have come to the crossroads of doubt to endeavor to become acquainted with their other selves. All who wish to do so will find it helpful if they take a lesson from nature. Observation will show that the eternal stars shine nightly in their accustomed places that the sun continues to send down its rays of warmth, causing Mother Earth to yield an overabundance of food and clothing, that water continues to flow downhill, that the birds of the air and the wild animals of the forest receive their accustomed requirements of food, that useful day follows restful night, that busy summer follows the inactive winter, that the seasons come and go precisely as they did before the 1929 Depression began, that... In reality, only men's minds have ceased to function normally, and this because men have filled their minds with fear. Observation of these simple facts of everyday life may be helpful as a starting point for those who wish to supplant fear by faith. I'm not a prophet, 
but I can, with all due modesty, predict that every individual has the power to change his or her material or financial status by first changing the nature of his or her beliefs. Do not confuse the word belief with the word wish. The two are not the same. Everyone is capable of wishing for financial, material, or spiritual advantages, but the element of faith is the only sure power by which a wish may be translated into a belief, and a belief into reality. And right here is an appropriate place at which to call attention to a real benefit which anyone may experience by deliberately using faith and focusing attention upon any form of constructive desire. The mind acts upon one's dominating or most pronounced desires. There is no escape from this fact. It is a fact indeed. Be careful what you set your heart upon, for it surely shall be yours. Faith is the beginning of all great achievement. If Edison had stopped by merely wishing for the secret with which electric energy might be harnessed and made to serve through the incandescent lamp, that convenience to civilization would have remained among nature's multifarious secrets. He met with temporary defeat more than 10,000 times before wresting this secret from nature. It was finally yielded up to him because he believed it would be, and he kept on trying until he had the answer. Edison uncovered more of nature's secrets. They might have been called miracles at an earlier period, in the realm of physics, than did any other man who ever lived, and this because he became acquainted with his other self. I have his own word for this, but even if I did not have it, his achievements of themselves have disclosed the secret in their unfoldment. Nothing within reason is impossible to the man who knows and relies upon his other self. Whatever man believes to be true has a way of becoming true. A prayer is a released thought, sometimes expressed in audible words and at other times expressed silently. I have observed by experience that a silent prayer is as efficacious as the one which is expressed in words. I have observed also that one's state of mind is the determining factor when prayer works as well as when it does not. My conception of the other self, which I have tried to describe, is that it merely symbolizes a newly discovered approach to infinite intelligence, an approach which one may control and direct through the simple process of mixing faith with one's thoughts. This is only another way of saying that I now have a greater faith in the power of prayer. The state of mind known as faith apparently opens to one the medium of a sixth sense, through which one may communicate with sources of power and information, far surpassing any available through the five physical senses. There comes to your aid and to do your bidding with the development of the sixth sense a strange power which, let us assume, is a guardian angel who can open to you at all times the door to the temple of wisdom. The sixth sense comes as near as being a miracle as anything I have ever experienced, and it appears so perhaps because I do not understand the method by which the principle is operated. This much I do know, that there is a power or a first cause, or an intelligence which permeates every atom of matter and embraces every unit of energy perceptible to man, that this infinite intelligence converts acorns into oak trees, causes water to flow downhill in response to the law of gravity follows night with day, and winter with summer, each maintaining its proper place and relationship to the other. This intelligence may aid in transmuting one's desires into concrete or material form. I have this knowledge because I've experimented with it and have experienced it. I have for many years followed the habit of taking personal inventory of myself once a year. 
for the purpose of determining how many of my weaknesses I have bridged or eliminated, and to ascertain what progress, if any, I have made during the year. Chapter 3. A Strange Interview with the Devil While you are reading the interview with the devil, you will recognize from the brief description I have given you of the history of my life what a desperate effort the devil made to muzzle me before I gained public recognition. You will understand also, after reading the interview with the devil, why the interview had to be preceded by this personal history of my background. Before you begin to read the interview, I want you to have a clear picture of the final fling the devil had at me, and be it remembered with profit that it was this final fling which gave Mercy a chance to turn and twist the devil's tail until he squealed out his confession. The devil's undoing began with the Depression of 1929. Through that fortunate turn of the wheel of life, I lost my 600-acre estate in the Catskill Mountains. My income was entirely cut off. The Harriman National Bank, in which all my funds were deposited, folded up and was wiped out. Before I realized what was happening, I found myself caught up in a spiritual and economic hurricane, which evolved into a worldwide catastrophe of such force that no individual or group of individuals could withstand it. While waiting for the storm to seize and the stampede of human fear to stop, I moved to Washington, D.C., the city from which I made my start after my first meeting with Andrew Carnegie, nearly a quarter of a century previously. There seemed nothing for me to do except sit down and wait. All I had was time. After three years of waiting without tangible results, my restless soul began to push me back into service. There was little opportunity for me to teach a philosophy of success when the world around me was in the midst of an abject failure, and men's minds were filled with the fear of poverty. This thought came to me one evening while I was sitting in my automobile in front of the Lincoln Memorial on the Potomac River, within the shadow of the Capitol. With it came another thought. The world had staged an unprecedented depression over which no human being had control. With that depression had come to me an opportunity to test the philosophy of self-determination, to the organization of which I had devoted the better portion of my adult life. Once more, I had the opportunity to learn whether my philosophy was practical or mere theory. I realized, too, the opportunity had come to test a claim I had made hundreds of times, that every adversity brings with it the seed of an equivalent advantage. What, if any, I asked myself, were the advantages to me of a world depression? When I began to look for a direction in which I might move to test my philosophy, I made the most shocking discovery of my life. I discovered that through some strange power which I did not understand, I had lost my courage. My initiative had been demoralized. My enthusiasm had been weakened. Worst of all, I was sorely ashamed to acknowledge that I was the author of a philosophy of self-determination. Because deep down in my heart I knew, or thought I knew, that I could not make my philosophy pull me out of the hole of despair in which I found myself. While I floundered in a state of mental bewilderment, the devil must have been dancing a jig or rejoicing. At last he had the author of the world's first philosophy of individual achievement pinned under his thumb and paralyzed with indecision. But the devil's opposition must have been at work too. As I sat there in front of the Lincoln Memorial, reviewing in retrospect the circumstances which had so many times previously lifted me to great heights of achievement, only to let me drop to equal depths of despair, a happy thought was handed over to me in the form of a definite plan of action. 
by which I believed I could throw off that hypnotic feeling of indifference with which I had been bound. In the interview with the devil, the exact nature of the power by which I had been deprived of my initiative and courage has been described. It is the same power with which millions of others were bound during the Great Depression. It is the chief weapon with which the devil ensnares and controls human beings. The sum and substance of this thought which came to me was this. Despite the fact that I had learned from Andrew Carnegie and more than 500 others of equal business and professional achievements, that noteworthy achievements in all walks of life come through the application of the mastermind, the harmonious coordination of two or more minds working to a definite end. I had failed to make such an alliance for the purpose of carrying out my plan to take the philosophy of individual achievement to the world. Despite the fact I'd understood the power of the mastermind, I had neglected to appropriate and use this power. I had been laboring as a lone wolf instead of allying myself with other and superior minds. An Analysis Let us now briefly analyze the strange interview you are about to begin. Some who read it will want to ask after they finish it, Did you really interview the devil or did you merely interview an imaginary devil? Some may wish the answer to this question before they begin the interview. I will answer in the only truthful way I could answer, by saying that the devil I interviewed may have been real, just as he claimed to be, or he may have been the creation of my own imagination. Whichever he was, whether real or imaginary, is of little importance compared with the nature of the information conveyed through the interview. The important question is this. Does the interview convey dependable information which may be helpful to people who are trying to find their places in the world? If it conveys that sort of information, no matter whether it is conveyed in the form of fact or fiction, then it is worthy of serious analysis through careful reading. I'm not concerned in the least as to the real source of the information or as to the real nature of the devil whose astounding story you are about to read. I am concerned only with the fact that the devil's confession squares perfectly with what I have seen of life. I believe the interview does convey information of practical benefit to all who have not found life to be friendly. And the reason I believe so is the fact that I have made the central theme of this book yield to me all the happiness I need, in the form best suited to my nature. I have had experience with enough of the principles mentioned by the devil to assure me that they will do exactly what he says they will. That is enough for me. So I pass the story of the interview on to you for whatever you may be able to make it pay in useful dividends. Perhaps you will get the greatest values if you accept the devil as being what he claims himself to be, relying upon his message for whatever it may bring you that you can use, and not worrying as to who the devil is or whether he exists. If you want my honest personal opinion, I believe the devil is exactly who he claims to be. Now let us analyze his strange confession. After forcing his way into the consciousness of the devil, Mr. Earthbound began the unwilling interview with questions which could not be evaded. Here begins the interview with the devil. I have uncovered the secret code by which I can pick up your thoughts. I have come to ask you some very plain questions. I demand that you give me direct and truthful answers. Are you ready for the interview, Mr. Devil? Yes, I am ready but you must address me with more respect. During this interview, you will address me as Your Majesty. By what right do you demand such royal respect? You should know that I control 98% of the people of your world. 
Do you not think that entitles me to rate as royalty? Have you proof of your claim? Yes, plenty of it. Of what does your proof consist? Of many things. If you want answers, you will address me as Your Majesty. Some things you will understand, some you will not. In order that you may get my viewpoint, I shall describe myself and correct the false notions people have of me and my place of abode. That is a fine idea, Your Majesty. Start by telling me where you live, then describe your physical appearance. My physical appearance? Why, my dear Mr. Earthbound, I have no physical body. I would be handicapped by such an encumbrance as those in which you Earthbound creatures live. I consist of negative energy, and I live in the minds of people who fear me. I also occupy one half of every atom of physical matter, and every unit of mental and physical energy. Perhaps you will better understand my nature if I tell you I am the negative portion of the atom. Oh, I see what you are preparing to claim. You are laying the foundation to say that if it were not for you, there would be no world, no stars, no electrons, no atoms, no human beings, nothing. Is that correct? True. Absolutely true. Well, if you can only occupy one half of energy and matter, who occupies the other half? The other half is occupied by my opposition. Opposition? What do you mean? The opposition is what you earthbound call God. So you have the universe divided up with God. Is that your claim? Not my claim, but the actual fact. Before this interview is finished, you will understand why my claim is true. You will also understand why it has to be true. Or there could be no world such as yours, no earthbound creatures such as you. I am no beast with a forked tongue and a spiked tail. But you control the minds of 98 out of every 100 people. You said so yourself. Who causes all the misery in this 98% devil-controlled world if you do not? I have not said that I do not cause all the misery of the world. On the other hand, I boast of it. It is my business to represent the negative side of everything, including the thoughts of you earthbound people. How else could I control people? My opposition controls positive thought. I control negative thought. How do you gain control of the minds of people? Oh, that is easy. I merely move in and occupy the unused space of the human brain. I sow the seeds of negative thought in the minds of people so I can occupy and control the space. You must have many tricks and devices by which you gain and hold control of the human mind. To be sure, I employ tricks and devices to control human thought. My devices are clever ones, too. Go ahead and describe your clever tricks, Your Majesty. One of my cleverest devices for mind control is fear. I plant the seed of fear in the minds of people, and as these seeds germinate and grow through use, I control the space they occupy. The six most effective fears are the fear of poverty, criticism, ill health, loss of love, old age, and death. Which of these six fears serves you most often, Your Majesty? The first and the last, poverty and death. At one time or another during life, I tighten my grip on all people through one or both of these. I plant these fears in the minds of people so deftly that they believe them to be their own creation. 
I accomplish this end by making people believe I am standing just beyond the entrance gate of the next life, waiting to claim them after death for eternal punishment. Of course, I cannot punish anyone except in that person's own mind through some form of fear. But fear of the thing which does not exist is just as useful to me as fear of that which does exist. All forms of fear extend the space I occupy in the human mind. Your Majesty, will you explain how you gained this control over human beings? The story is too long to be told in a few words. It began over a million years ago when the first man began to think. Up to that time, I had control over all mankind, but enemies of mine discovered the power of positive thought, placed it in the minds of men, and then began a battle on my part to remain in control. So far, I have done quite well by myself, having lost only 2% of the people to the opposition. I take it from your answer that men who think are your enemies. Is that right? It is not right, but it is correct. Tell me something more about the world in which you live. I live wherever I choose. Time and space do not exist for me. I'm a force best described to you as energy. My favorite physical dwelling place, as I have told you, is the minds of the earthbound. I control a part of the brain space of every human being. The amount of space I occupy in each individual's mind depends upon how little or what sort of thinking that person does. As I have told you, I cannot entirely control any person who thinks. You speak of your opposition. What do you mean by that? My opponent controls all the positive forces of the world such as love, faith, hope, and optimism. My opponent also controls the positive factors of all natural law throughout the universe, the forces which keep the earth and the planets and all the stars balanced in their courses. But these forces are meek in comparison with those which operate in the human mind under my control. You see, I do not seek to control stars and planets. I prefer the control of human minds. Where did you acquire your power, and by what means do you add to it? I add to my power by appropriating the mind power of the earthbound, as they come through the gate at the time of death. Ninety-eight out of every one hundred who come back to my plane from the earth plane are taken over by me, and their mind power is added to my being. I get all who come over with any form of fear. You see, I am constantly at work, preparing the minds of people before death so I can appropriate them when they come back to my plane. Will you tell me how you go about your job of preparing human minds so you can control them? I have countless ways of gaining control of human minds while they are still on the earth plane. My greatest weapon is poverty. I deliberately discourage people from accumulating material wealth because poverty discourages men from thinking and makes them easy prey for me. My next best friend is ill health. An unhealthy body discourages thinking. Then I have countless thousands of workers on earth who aid me in gaining control of human minds. I have these agents placed in every calling. They represent every race and creed, every religion. Who are your greatest enemies on earth, your majesty? All who inspire people to think and act on their own initiative are my enemies. Such men as Socrates, Confucius, Voltaire, Emerson. Thomas Paine, and Abraham Lincoln. And you are not doing me any good either. Is it true that you use men who have great wealth? 
as I have already told you, poverty is always my friend because it discourages independence of thought and encourages fear in the minds of men. Some wealthy men serve my cause while others do me great damage, depending upon how the wealth is used. The great Rockefeller fortune, for example, is one of my worst enemies. That is interesting, Your Majesty. Will you tell me why you fear the Rockefeller fortune more than others? The Rockefeller money is being used to isolate and conquer diseases of the physical body in all parts of the world. Disease has always been one of my most effective weapons. The fear of ill health is second only to the fear of poverty. The Rockefeller money is uncovering new secrets of nature in a hundred different directions, all of which are designed to help men take and keep possession of their own minds. It is encouraging new and better methods of feeding, clothing, and housing people. It is wiping out the slums in the large cities, the places where my favorite allies are found. It is financing campaigns for better government and helping to wipe out dishonesty in politics. It is helping to set higher standards in business practice and encouraging businessmen to conduct business by the golden rule. And that is not doing my cause any good. What about these boys and girls who are said to be on the road to hell? Are you in control of them? Well... I can answer that question only with yes and no. I have corrupted the minds of the young by teaching them to drink and smoke, but they have baffled me through their tendency to think for themselves. You say you have corrupted the minds of the young people with liquor and cigarettes? I can understand how liquor might destroy the power of independent thought, but do not see what cigarettes have to do with helping your cause. You may not know it, but cigarettes break down the power of persistence. They destroy the power of endurance. They destroy the ability to concentrate. They deaden and undermine the imaginative faculty and help in other ways to keep people from using their minds most effectively. Do you know I have millions of people, young and old, of both sexes, who smoke two packages of cigarettes a day? That means I have millions of people who are gradually destroying their power of resistance. One day I shall add to their habit of cigarette smoking other thought-destroying habits, until I shall have gained control of their minds. Habits come in pairs, triplets, and quadruplets. Any habit which weakens one's willpower invites a flock of its relatives to move in and take possession of the mind. The cigarette habit not only lowers the power of resistance and discourages persistence, but it invites looseness in other human relationships. I never thought that cigarettes were a tool of destruction, Your Majesty. But your explanation throws a different light on the subject. How many converts to the habit do you now claim? I'm proud of my record. Millions are now victims, and the number is increasing daily. Soon I shall have most of the world indulging in the habit. In thousands of families, I now have followers of the habit, including every member of the family. Very young boys and girls are beginning to take up the habit. They are learning how to smoke by observing their parents and older brothers and sisters. Which do you consider to be your greatest tool for gaining control of human minds? Cigarettes or liquor? Without hesitation, I would say cigarettes. Once I get a young person to join my two-package-a-day club, I have no trouble in inducing that person to take on the habit of liquor, overindulgence of sex and all other related habits which destroy independence of thought and action.
Your Majesty, when I began this interview, I had you all wrong. I thought you were a fraud and a fake, but now I see that you are quite real and very powerful. Your apology is accepted, but you need not have bothered. Millions of people have questioned my power, and I got most of them at the gate as they came over. I ask no person to believe in me. I prefer that people fear me. I am no beggar. I take what I want by cleverness and force. Begging people to believe is the business of my opposition, not mine. Your Majesty will please pardon my rudeness, but I would not be able to look myself in the face again if I did not tell you, here and now, that you are the damnedest fiend ever to be turned loose on innocent people. I always had the wrong conception of you. I thought you were kind enough to let people alone while they were living, that you merely tortured their souls after death. Now I learn from your own brazen confession that you destroy their right to freedom of thought and cause them to go through a living hell on earth. What do you have to say to that? I get what I want by exercising self-control. It is not so good for my own business, but I suggest you emulate me instead of criticizing me. You call yourself a thinker, and you are. Otherwise, you would never have forced this interview on me. But you will never be the sort of thinker that frightens me unless you gain and exercise greater control over your own emotions. Let us get away from personalities. I came here to learn more about you, not to discuss myself. Please go ahead and tell me of the many tricks you have devised for gaining control of the human mind. What is your most powerful weapon just now? That is a difficult question to answer. I have so many devices for entering human minds and controlling them that it is difficult to say which are the most powerful. Right at the moment, I am trying to bring about another world war. My friends here in Washington are helping me to involve America in the war. If I can start the world to killing on a wholesale basis, I shall be able to put into operation my favorite device for mind control. It is what you may call mass fear. I used this device to bring about the other world war in 1914. I used it to bring about the economic depression in 1929. And if my opposition had not double-crossed me, I would now be in possession of every man, woman, and child in the world. You can see for yourself how near I came to world domination, the thing I have been struggling to attain for thousands of years. Yes, I see your point. Who wouldn't? You are a very ingenious manipulator of the minds of people. Is your devilish business carried on only through people of high position and great influence? Ah, uh, no. I use the minds of people in all walks of life. As a matter of fact, I prefer the type of person who makes no pretense of thinking. I can manipulate that sort of person without difficulty. I could not control 98% of the people of the world if all people were skilled in thinking for themselves. I'm interested in the welfare of those people who you claim to control. Therefore, I wish you to tell me all of the tricks by which you enter and control their minds. I want a complete confession from you, so begin with your cleverest trick. This is suicide you are forcing on me, but I am helpless. So settle down and I will place in your hands the weapon by which millions of your fellow earthbound will defend themselves against me. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes.
This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.